No pressure. <laughs> um, good morning again, everybody. How's everyone doing? Good. Awesome. Um, I'm just going to jump right in. Um, so the past week and a bit, I've really been, the Lord has really been talking to me about servant leadership and what that means, what that looks like. And um, <laughs> but it actually started because the other day, I was driving to drop Rocky off at my parents' house, and I was just like, you know, praying, and the Lord reminded me of something that happened a couple of years ago. Um, I must have been six or seven years old. Um, me and Dave were playing in the garden. We had some friends over. I don't remember which friends, but I do love them. Um, and we're playing, we're having a good time, and Davey looked at me, and he says, he, he's two years younger than me, so he must have been four or five, he says, Terry, I'm thirsty, go and make us some juice. <laughs> and I was so offended that my baby brother had the audacity to give me orders. So I turned to him, and with all of the indignation my little six, seven-year-old body could muster, I said, I am not your servant, go and make it yourself. Clearly, I wasn't listening in kids' church. Sorry, Auntie Lee. <laughs> um, but the Lord just reminded me of this thing, and I'm like, flip. You know, I know I was only six, so I'll give myself grace, but it's so backwards to what, what Christ teaches. And um, yeah, I, it's easy to say, um, to put all of the, the blame onto our current society. We want to say, no, uh, servant leadership is so countercultural to today's culture and what, what. But if you look at history, it's always been countercultural to be a servant leader. Kings were carried everywhere that they went. They didn't walk on the, on the dust like all the plebs. Um, politicians don't have to wait in traffic. The blue light brigade just pss, pss, cuts through. Servant leadership has not been a thing ever in the world. And it's because our fleshly and our human nature wants to be elevated. It wants the status it wants the honor, it wants the prestige, it wants the privileges that we as people associate with the title. But one solid example that we've had of servant leaders that have been existent throughout history is our moms. Our moms are incredible, incredible examples of servant leadership. When the kids are small, the morning is like, okay, change the nappy, wash the hands quickly. Now I've got to go and make breakfast. This one can't feed himself, so I've got to feed him breakfast. I'm going to eat the leftovers because there's no time to make me breakfast, but I'll make a quick coffee. And then this one can't find their jackets, find the jackets. Um, where's your shoes? Put on your shoes, please. Okay, do you want me to tie them? Okay, all right, tie the shoelace. Now you go back. My coffee's cold. Let me put it in the microwave quickly. Beep, beep, beep. Forget that it's there. Get everyone in the car. And now you've got to deal with the silliest arguments you've ever heard in your life. No, this one is breathing that one's air. And that is unacceptable. This one's not sharing the armrest, mom. Can you believe it? So you finally get to school. You offload the kids. And you just... <sighs> and it's not even 8 o'clock in the morning yet. Please, guys, give it a help for the moms because they had to deal with all of that. All of them at some point had to deal with that before 8 a.m. And the only thing that you did for yourself, you left it in the microwave and you forgot about it. 
And of course, that movie changes as the kids get older, but it never stops. The serving never stops. And yeah, moms, I want to just honor you for that. It's awesome. You guys are incredible examples of what it means to be a servant leader. But now I'm going to talk about the best example of servant leadership, which is the example himself, Jesus. So if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 13. And we're just going to read together. So this is, um, this is hap- took place around the Last Supper, and it was before the Passover celebration. So verse 1, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and to return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. Jesus didn't just lead his disciples. He didn't just walk with them. He didn't just hold them accountable. He didn't just teach them. Jesus loved his disciples deeply to the very end. That brings me to my first point. Servant leadership, authentic servant leadership can only be motivated by real love. Because if it's not, then it's just a campaign to achieve or to maintain a title. We're going to continue reading. Verse 2, it was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and returned to God. I think it's so key that before we see Jesus doing anything, Jesus' authority and also his awareness and his knowledge of his authority is noted here. Because it brings me to my second point. Jesus had the security to serve. Jesus had nothing to prove. He had nothing to, sorry, nothing to prove, nothing to lose, and nothing to hide. Only insecure leaders are afraid of being perceived as less than. And insecure leaders who might not recognize their authority, that's also not authentic servant leadership because they believe that they're servants. But Jesus knew he had authority. He knew that what God had given him, and still he was secure enough to serve. So he got up from the table. He took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. And he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had around him. I love that transition from verse 3 to verse 4. Because it says Jesus had all of this authority. God gave him this authority. And he knew he had this authority. So he got up from the table. Therefore he got up. Because he had this authority, he got up, tied a towel around his waist, put water in a basin, and started to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. Leaders serve because that's what God expects from those in authority. It is because of our authority that we are called to serve as leaders. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested. You will never, ever wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you do not belong to me. Just a quick little point. Unless I wash you, you do not belong to me. Unless we are cleansed by Jesus' blood, we do not belong to him. Unless we are 
covered by the blood of Jesus, we are not a part of the kingdom of God. But I love this interaction with Peter because I feel that half of the Gospels is just Jesus blowing Peter's mind and completely like smashing every like structure and paradigm that he had in his, in his mind that was set by the culture of the time. And I think that the same thing happens to the other disciples. I think they were just as like shaken up. But Peter was the one who asked the questions. Peter was the one who spoke up and said, but Lord, why? He couldn't stop himself from asking. You will never wash my feet. I will never betray you, Lord. These others will leave, but not me, Lord. Big mouth. (laughs) Jesus was far more focused on getting his lesson across than he was on making Peter comfortable. Servant leaders lead by example and not by command. Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and my head as well, Lord, not just my feet. Jesus replied, a person who has bathed all over does not need you to wash, except for the feet to be entirely clean. And the disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. And that is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. This is a clear reference to Judas's betrayal. And it's important to note that Judas's feet were washed, just like everyone else's. Now, I can imagine the way Jesus must have felt, washing Judas's feet, knowing that he would betray him, knowing that it was already in his heart, that he was already plotting. But I wonder how Judas felt, knowing that he had this plan. If it were me, I would feel so undeserving. I would feel so unworthy. I would feel so dirty and so broken. But Jesus washed his feet anyway, because servant leaders serve everyone, especially the undeserving. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, do you understand what I am doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that is what I am. Jesus just had to remind the disciples of his authority, because they can be slow sometimes. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that is what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow and do as I have done to you. This is a clear commanding moment for us. Not when the cameras are rolling, when it fits into your busy schedule, when you've had a good day and you can actually deal with it today. Do as I have done to you. Jesus calls everyone who is called a leader to serve those whom they lead. Jesus continues to show us his ways are not our ways. His kingdom is not what we expected. And the standard that he has for the people that serve in his kingdom is entirely different to what anyone had in mind. I'm going to close with verse verse 16. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master. Nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Now when I read this, I got to this verse after I'd prepped the whole preach. (laughs) And I was like, Lord, this contradicts literally everything you taught us. You're talking about how, no, the leader must become less and we must serve and we must go down. And now you're talking about slaves are not greater than their master. The messenger is not as important as the one who sent the message. 
but God, Jesus is speaking about the master, about the sender. God is greater than all of us. And if the greatest of all, if the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords, if the very alpha and omega, if Yahweh can lower himself into the form of a man and then take it a step further and lower himself even more to your servant, the least in the house who puts takes off his robe, ties a towel around his waist, and washes the feet of those who enter the house and washes the feet of the guests of the house. Who are we, the slaves and the messengers, who are we to turn our noses up at it? I'm going to call Kimmy up and pray for her. Lord Jesus, I pray for Kimmy as she shares. Um, I pray that all, all our hearts would be open and that we would hear exactly what you need to say to us and that her words would land on fertile soil in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Tess. So, um, when I was thinking about what the Lord was wanting me to share today, you know, um, Obviously, it's Mother's Day, and we want to acknowledge that. Um, and it's really such an amazing opportunity to be able to share with you guys. Um, but I'm 21 years old, <laughs> and I am in no place to tell you how to be a mom. <laughs> um, but I, I can remind you of who you are. Um, and this ties in with so, so well with what Terry was sharing, because before you're a servant leader, before you're a mom, before you're a teacher, before you're a dad, before you're a leader in any, any kind of sense, you're a child of God. And I want to read, firstly, from John 1. Um, so bear with me. It's going to come up on the screen, but you can also follow it on your device. It says, the word became flesh. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing that has been made would be made. In him was life, and that life was light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He only came as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming to the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right, the right to become children of God, Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness, we have received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
And no one has ever seen God, but only the one and only Son, who himself is God, and is in close relationship with the Father, has made him known. So before you're a leader, before you're a teacher, before you're a mom, you are a child, but a child of God. And, and all you have to do is receive Jesus, and then you receive that right. And it's not of natural descent. No one, no one can make you that child. It comes entirely from God. And it's an instantaneous adoption into his family, but it's a progressive transformation into his image and likeness, into his DNA. Because when you, when you are born from your parents, you, you become like them, and they're made in your image, and he transforms you into his image. And it's entirely from him. It's not your action or your decision. And Michael Eaton says that faith is putting out an empty hand to receive what God is giving. And that's what it is. It's receiving. It's receiving the right. You can't earn it, but you can receive it. And that's who you are, a child of God. And not only are you a child of God, but Jesus, who we read as the true light, is within you. And because he's within you, you are righteous in him, not in you. It's not you get saved, you're a child of God, now you have to go and read your Bible and try and be righteous. No, you are righteous in Jesus immediately, and you receive his status before God. When God sees you, he sees his son, he sees Jesus and just as Jesus is the son of God, we become the sons of God. And I use sons intentionally because back then in those days, daughters weren't given the same inheritance that was given to a son. But to us, to, to us, the ladies, to the women, to the moms, to the sons, to the dads, to the fathers, we have the same inheritance. We are all children of God and God sees us. When he sees us, he sees his son. Our lives are hidden in Christ, and we are ascended with Christ into heavenly places. His heavenly home is our dwelling. We receive Christ's mind and spirit. We die in him, but we are raised to life again in him as well. And grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. They came. They were not given through him. They came because Jesus was grace and truth. It was his identity. Jesus was the grace of God in human form, and he is the ultimate truth of God. And without Jesus, God is inaccessible. He's inaccessible to us. But with Jesus, with the word, with the true light, God reveals himself. God chose to communicate through his son, and Jesus is God's mind in human form. And when we're full of the word, when we're full of the true light, when we're full of Jesus, we're full of grace and truth. And that's freeing for us. That's freeing for you moms. Because when you feel like you've come to your end and you don't have more grace to give, um, and you're tired, you're tired, you're burnt out, you can find rest in the fact that it's not your light. You're not shining your light. You don't have to have the grace and the truth because it's not coming from your source. It's coming from Jesus. And when you feel lost, when you feel like you don't have the grace, spend time with the grace and the truth. And with that understanding, with knowing that you're a child of God, 
that the true light is in you and you're full of grace and truth. I want to go into the next part of what I wanted to share. And it comes from Second John, well, no, John 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. <laughs> Yikes. Okay. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars that were used um, by the Jews in ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he was told, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then leaves the cheaper wine after the, drinks have, the guests have already had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So here we see Jesus' first miracle where he turns water into wine. And the story is so symbolic because it's symbolic of the old age of Jerusalem, of law, of religion, finishing, and the new wine of the new covenant of eternal life of Jesus coming into play. So this is the situation we're at, right? It's a, it's a wedding and they're out of wine. Um, and if you know anything about the context in those days, this was a big big problem. It had problems in society, in, in status. Um, people would question the authenticity of your marriage. It was just a hectic situation. And this pictures the world's need. It's symbolic of life and how calamities, how disruptions and disappointments and disasters can come. And then there's these water jars. And these weren't jars for wine. They weren't nice, pretty jugs. These were for cleansing, for the, Jew, the Jewish ceremonial rituals of the law to cleanse themselves. And these represent failed religion. Failed religion. Old Judaism can do nothing when the wine runs out. Traditional religion can't help. Life, motherhood, balance, relationships, they are tough and they're unexpected. Um, and we don't know when we're going to reach a place of emptiness, but there is a hope. Mary came. She didn't tell Jesus what to do. She just presented the situation to him. Because she knew he was divine. She knew who her son was. She knew his identity. She wasn't coming to him as her son. She was coming to him as the Savior, the Messiah, God's own child, God's own son. And just before this, Jesus had been baptized and his identity had been affirmed by the Father when the dove descended on him and God's voice came down from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. This is the context that Mary came to Jesus in. And while she couldn't choose when Jesus chose to reveal himself, she trusted him and she told the servants to obey him. 
Now we're getting to the good stuff, okay? Now Jesus comes, and only Jesus is the creator of the new wine. Only Jesus can give us eternal life. The servants could not create the wine. He didn't even need them to fill the pots. He could have done it without them. But he uses them, and he asks them to, pull, to fill the new pots, fill the pots. Um, and the secret to the new wine is that Jesus creates it. It's obeying Jesus. All they had to do was fill the pots. So what does this mean for us? Just as the servants had to fill the pots, we have to do certain things to enjoy the sweet wine of Jesus and his kingdom. The first is we believe that he can do something about your situation. Whatever situation you're in, it doesn't matter if you're a mom and maybe one of your kids is on the wrong path. Maybe you don't know what to do. The first thing you do is you believe. You believe in your, in your Savior. You know who he is. You know who Jesus was. And you believe that he can do something about your situation. And then you fill your pot with water. You do something that Jesus might use to remedy your emptiness. You keep his commands. You listen. You obey. You pray. You search scripture and you seek to please God. However... The key, the key to all of this is that none of that can create the wine. Only Jesus can turn the water into wine. But it's up to us to make sure that our pots are full. And the sweet wine of the kingdom is sweet. It's abundant. It's the blessing and treasures of eternal life. It's immense. It's great. It's sweet. And Jesus doesn't give us empty pots of religion And he doesn't leave us with water. No, he comes and he creates sweet wine of eternal life. That is energy. That is insight. That's purity. That's joy. That's power. That's discovering that in the midst of your dry season, Jesus is there to turn your water into wine. Just fill your pot and come to him. And this, the beautiful thing about this miracle, Jesus' first miracle is that it takes place at a wedding. And we, church, are called the bride of Christ. He's coming back for us as the lamb, as one who laid his life down for his church. But before we're the bride, we need to make sure that we fix our identity. Remember what we read in in John 1? We're children of God and our attitude in him. Servants willing to obey, like Terry said, servant-hearted leadership. And then we let him turn our water into wine. Thanks, guys. I'm going to call up mom now. Um, And I'm sorry we are going a little bit over time. Um, But I hope that you're enjoying this. Um, And please feel free to leave if you do need to. But I'm going to pray for mom quickly. And she's just going to quickly share and tie into what has already been shared this morning. But Lord, thank you so much for mom. Thank you for all the moms here this morning. Thank you for the blessing that they are to us, the wisdom that they impart to us. Um, And thank you for the love that they have for us, Lord, and the love that they have for you. Be with mom as she shares. I pray that you would just be her, that you would use her as your mouthpiece and speak through her. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow. (laughs) That was just incredible, girls. (laughs) How do I carry on from that? (laughs) Uh, so 
I think I probably had about three things prepared for today. And um, this morning as I was praying, I thought, no, felt God just weaving something completely different. And um, after what the girls have shared, Terry about servant leadership and, and Kimmy about um, Jesus, you know, turning water into wine, only he can do that. And our identity being in him and um, us being children of God, um, what I shared, I just want to carry on from that. Um, when we read um, the letters that Paul wrote and all the apostles, it seems like the yardstick that he uses to measure the health of the church or the health of the believers is three things. Mom, moms, believers, there's only three things, right? <laughs> Number one, well, let me just stick to my notes if you don't mind. <laughs> okay. And I'm just amazed um, at how many times they mention these three things together in one verse or in a passage of Scripture. So I'm going to read from Colossians 1 verse 45, and I don't think it's going to come up because I'm old school and I've got my paper notes. <laughs> so Colossians 1 verse 45 says, For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all God's people, which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You've had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. And then in 1 Timothy 6, verse 11 to 12, it says Paul's, the heading is Paul's final instructions. But you, Timothy, are a man of God, so run from all these evil things. Pursue righteousness and a godly life, along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight for the true faith. Hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you, which you have declared so well before many witnesses. 1 Peter 1, I'm just reading a few examples, yeah? 1 Peter 1, verse 21 to 22 says, Through, through Christ you have been come to trust in God, and you have placed your faith and hope in God, because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. You were cleansed from sins when you obeyed the truth, so now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. And the last uh, scripture reference is 1 Thess Thessalonians 1 verse 3. As we pray to our God and Father about you, we think of your faithful work faithful work, your loving deeds, the enduring hope you have because of Lord Jesus Christ. Mother, father, fellow believer, what is the measure of faith, your faith, hope, and love? Our faith is as big as our view of God, his promises, and what our God can do and what he has done. When we go through difficult times, it is, a, is an, it is an opportunity for our faith to grow. Faith is also referred to as steadfastness. It speaks of something that cannot be shaken, an assurance that God is who he says he is. Faith is directed to God in these passages, passages of scripture, sorry. <laughs> um, so our faith is directed at God. Our faith is in God. Um, and as Kimmy so rightly um, quoted Michael Eaton, it's an empty hand extended to God 
and expecting him to, to fill us. And then we see love, the other, <laughs> other thing that Paul and the other apostles mention is love. Love is directed to others. The measure in which we love others is the measure of our love for the Father. Difficult people, husbands, children, <laughs> all these are an op- and wives. <laughs> all these are an opportunity for our love to grow. It's an opportunity for us to exercise the love that God has put into our hearts and ask Him for more and more and more of His love, so that we can love them with God's love. And then. Lastly, hope is so intertwined with faith. We cannot have hope without faith. Hebrews 6 verse 18 to 19 says, So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence We can have great confidence. We can flee to him for refuge and have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Our hope is God's promises and that he stands by them, that he will never leave us nor forsake us, and that we have hope beyond this life. James 2 verse 17 says, So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it's dead and useless. So so faith is backed by action, the way we love other people, the way we interact with them, um, and grow in our love for God and for others. Love is the outworking of of our faith and hope. It is faith in action. So moms, we have to believe God's promises over our children. That no matter how this parenting journey is, we have hope in God's future for them. That he is equipping them with whatever they need to face um, for for the world that they will be living in. And above all, we need to ask God for his love, his unconditional love. It's easy to love our children. Let's face it, that's... Servant leadership, the love for our children comes naturally. Um, But we can't leave training them up to the children's church workers or the school teachers. (laughs) We need to put in godly foundations in our lives first and impart these biblical foundations to our our children. Proverbs 22 verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Sometimes love looks a lot like discipline. (laughs) Sometimes it's a listening ear. Sometimes it's cooking a favorite meal. There's so many examples of of love. Um, And and it's not always easy. But thank God for his love that he pours out into our hearts. And I just want to close off with 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. that says, three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. And if we, we don't measure ourselves by worldly standards, we measure ourselves by what God, <laughs> what is important to God, and that is faith in him, love for each other, and hope in the eternal future that he has for us. And that is my story for today. <laughs> I don't know how you want to end off. <laughs>
Thank you so much, Mom. Um, yeah, won't you stand with me so I can pray for us?